It's good to be back with you. Many of you don't know. It's always fun. Uh, I don't know when Julie and I come and visit. Well, we come every Sunday we're in town, but we sneak in kind of, you know, under the radar. And, and when, when they ask to greet each other, it's always fun to be greeted by someone who has no idea that I've ever attended here before. And they'll, uh, I, literally, they'll say, so, so have you gone here long? I said, yeah, but the preaching's so much better now than it used to be. I mean, good grief. It's good that you came now. For those of you who don't know, we've attended here since 1986 and worked here when I couldn't avoid it. So, um, got a lot of things going. Uh, we're still doing the South Dallas ministry that graces uh, our partnership with the Cornerstone Baptist. We've helped over 40 businesses start there. Um, we've given out over $100,000 in grants. Um, thank you. And we are now hiring our first paid employee. It's all been volunteers, but it's grown to the point we need uh, additional help. And, and I believe that ministry is continuing to grow. I'm on some boards, um, B-O-R-E-D, uh, and, and that's, that's been a lot of fun. I teach a Bible study locally, and, and I meet with men, and, and I try to make up for the ways I've neglected my wife all these years. So it's a good time. One of the boards I'm on has spent uh, $50,000, which is a lot of money for us. It's a small organization, but what we did was we, we brought in a national research firm to ask young adults and adolescents in the Dallas area, why do you not want to go to church anymore? And primarily went through church members. It's been fascinating, the results. We've got a big rollout next month, the results. And, and, and I'll give you a hint. There are all kinds of things you've heard about. Uh, um, Lifeway, the Baptist book chain, has also done a huge survey along with Ligonier Ministries. And, and um, for instance, they found that 25% of the young adults that leave the evangelical church cite the church's positions on social and and. Uh, righteousness issues, in other words, disagreement on political and social issues. 25% of those are, now, to read the press, you would think that's much harder, higher. It's really not as high as you think it is. There are other reasons, and it's fascinating to see what they are, but this won't surprise you. I think all the survey, surveys miss the biggest issue. I think I know what it is, and I'm going to tell you later on. So don't leave, no matter how bad it is you're going to hear. Um, so we're going to, I'm just going to talk about love. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, many of you know that attended here that 1 Corinthians 13 became significant in my life because in high school, my junior year, we desegregated. My senior year, we had race riots and it blew up. It was a, it was a really tough time. Uh, Mama sent their children to school with mace. Don't give a 15-year-old boy mace. Uh, I, 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 it, it was, you couldn't use the restroom. It was, it was terrible. Um, but during that time, I started reading 1 Corinthians 13 every day and did it for a couple of years. Can you imagine how bad I would be if I hadn't? It's a frightening thought. But it really had an impact in me. And so I want to take a look at what love is. Um, and you notice I said the, there's a problem with love. And there is a problem with love, and I, I want you to look at the different points that, that we focus on to show that. First of all, the first problem with love is it's required of us who we should love. Chapter, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. 
Mark chapter 12, verses. You know this passage if you've been around church long. One of the scribes came and heard arguments and recognizing that Jesus has answered them well, he said, what commandment is the greatest of all? And Jesus said, the greatest is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. First thing that's hard about love is we got no option. We're required to. And when Jesus was asked, how are you going to summarize the whole Old Testament? 39 books. Have you read them all? You should. They're crazy. There's a lot of stuff there. And Jesus was said, oh, theologian, how would, what's the greatest commandment? He said, I'm going to sum them all up in two verses. The first one is love the Lord your God. We skip over that first phrase. It's very important. Love the Lord your God is direct quotation for Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which Hebrew is called the great Shema. It was the John 3, 16 of the Israeli Israelites. It was the, it was the statement about who God is. The Lord your God implied the God of the nation of Israel, the sole God, the creator God. Jesus is being very clear that he's only talking about one God. It's not a choose the God you want to love. Jesus is saying, Lord, love the Lord God of Israel who created all things, the one who is alone to be worshiped. It's very specific here. One of the great sins of our day is that we make up the God of our choosing to worship. The problem is if we made them, they're not God, right? Jesus, very specific, Lord, the love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, he says, love God with everything. Love God with everything. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with everything. How do you do that? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you love someone you can't even see with everything? It's hard enough to love the people I see, right? And, and I'm not a terribly emotional person. I, I, don't, I don't have those warm, fluffy, mystical feelings about loving God that some people do. It, it's kind of, how, how do you do that? First of all, let me give you a couple of statements. First of all, we know we're drawn to that by the needs we feel. If we long for peace, we're longing for God because God is the source of peace. If we're longing for comfort, we're longing for God because he's the source of comfort. If, if we're longing for strength, we're longing for God because he's the source of our strength. If we're longing for mercy and grace, I believe God literally puts that in our hearts so that we'll long for him because he's the source so the things that we feel, those felt needs we have are attended by God to point us to the real need that only he can meet. Secondly, when it says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus answered that in John 14. He said, he, he said it real simply. He said, if you love me, what? Remember? Keep my commandments. Obey me. Notice that love in Scripture is active. It's not sentiment. 
In our world today, we've made love a feeling. It's a gushy thing, kind of like beating, eating bad anchovy pizza. The next day, you feel something coming. And, and the, the reality is that's, that's not what scriptural love is. Scriptural love is something that's lived out actively. It's demonstrated by what we do. Jesus said, obey me. So the first thing is to love the God of Israel, the sole God, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth with all that we have. He says, then the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, of course, the religious leader said, but who is my neighbor? They thought they'd get out of it. Surely he means only Jews. Surely he means only, you know, nice people. Surely, And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan to illustrate the neighbor is whoever God puts in your path that has a need. So love is hard because it's required. It's not optional. It's not optional. Secondly, let's get to 1 Corinthians 13. I, let me answer. I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because I know you. You've already tuned me out. Um, and because you're saying, yeah, but what about what about, how do, how do we respond to the evil in the world, right? Uh, Francis Schaeffer was the guy that Mike Fisher introduced me to re- Mike, uh, Francis Schaeffer's writings and when I was in high school, had a massive impact. So much fun to me to hear Jace quoting from him. I think he was the prophetic voice of the 20th century in America. Um, when he speaks, uh, he had a little book called The Mark of the Christian, which was actually an appendix to his book on the church at the end of the 20th century. And he says, so often people think that Christianity is only something soft, only a kind of gooey love that loves evil equally with good. This is not the biblical position. The holiness of God is to be exhibited simultaneously with love. We must be careful, therefore, not to say that what is wrong is right, whether it is in the area of doctrine or in life, in our group or another. Anywhere what is wrong is wrong. We have responsibility in that situation to say that what is wrong is wrong, but the observable love must be there regardless of the cost. The nature of God is such that no character in the person of God conflicts with any other characteristic in who he is. He is... is, Theologians call it his simplicity. He, he, if he's righteous, he's righteous in everything he does. If he's loving, he's loving in everything he does, which means he is always perfectly righteous and always perfectly loving. And when he declares something wrong, it is an act of his love because that which is wrong is destructive, Right? That which is wrong is destructive. So when God demands righteousness, when Jesus says, obey me, what he's saying is, I love you, do the things I command because the things I command will give you the greatest joy in life. They're perfectly consistent. We live in a unique era where we've tried to separate the two. Love means I always say yes, no matter how self-destructive. 
And righteousness means I'm angry at you for being wrong and I don't have to love you. The reality is in Scripture, the two are always perfectly consistent with each other. And that is the witness that the church is called to have, to have a prophetic voice of this is wrong. It's self-destructive. But we're going to love you in a way that only can be attributed to Christ no matter what. That's biblical love. 1 Corinthians 13. I said love is hard because it's required, but love is also hard, a problem, because it's hard. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Corinthians. Every pastor loves the Corinthian church because no matter how bad our church is, they were worse. I mean, they're a train wreck. They're a, they're a dumpster fire. I mean, they've got incest, they've got jealousy, they've got conflict, they're suing each other, they're, over, they're coming to the Lord's table and overeating and getting drunk. I mean, they're a world-class mess. They're a total mess. And, and Paul starts in chapter one dealing with the division. He says, some of you say you're loyal to me, some to Apollo, some to Peter. He said, it's not about us, guys. It's about God. And then he goes through issue after issue after issue. And then in chapter 12, he addresses the latest issue that's dividing them, and that is the spiritual gifts. Some of them have gotten all cut up in speaking in tongues. But they're, they're doing it without anyone to interpret. They're interrupting the services just to rattle off their noise. And he says, guys, you can't do that without interpretation because in the body of Christ, when you use tongues, it's got to be interpreted so that it's edifying to everyone else. In other words, the gifts aren't just about you. And by the way, that can be any true. Any gift can be abused that way. A preacher can, can think his preaching is all about him. A servant can think their serving is all about them. No matter which of the spiritual gifts, we could all twist them 90 degrees off so that they're no longer about serving God in Christ, loving God in Christ. They're about loving us. So in the middle of this, this diatribe against the abuse of the spiritual gifts, he's trying to correct their misunderstanding and says, wait a minute, let me show you the right way. And that's 1 Corinthians 13. And what's his first example? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, it's just noise. Because that's the gift he said is a lesser gift and really has no value in the congregation apart from interpretation. But then he throws them a high heater because he says, and if I have the gift of prophecy, which in chapter 14, he'll say is a desirable gift. They should desire. So he goes from a lesser gift to the greatest gift. And he says, no matter which one it is, done without love, they have no value. And if I have faith, well, faith is a pretty big deal because that's how we come into relationship with God. But he says, if I don't have love, even if I can move mountains, if I do it without love, it's of no value. You see what he's doing? He's, he's clicking through the issues that have divided them and now the issues that are important to them and says, no matter what you do, if you do it in the absence of love, it's valueless. By the way, that's terribly convicting. 
because all of us have fallen into, you know, doing good things with a bad attitude, with no love in it. You should hear preachers complain to each other, you know. Um, all of us can easily fall into the habit of, you know, I'm serving these selfish people. Why do I have to serve them? I mean, I always am the one who's serving Jesus loves me, this I know. You know, it just, we, we all can so easily fall into that habit and, and, and lose that one element that is the only element that makes it valuable. No matter what we do, if we do it in the absence of love, it has value. By the way, the inverse is true. When we do something with love, it has value. If, if I'm sweeping the floors at church or at home, but I'm doing it for the glory of God, it has value. If I'm serving my neighbors, I do it for the glory of God. It has value. I do it out of love for them. It can turn the most menial of tasks into something of great value when it's done out of love because that is the command that God gave that should shape all that we do otherwise. And it's just not optional. So what is love? What does it look like? Verse four. It, you'll notice that this, these next three verses are very similar to the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and there's probably a reason for that. Love is patient. The old authorized version, the King James said, suffers long. Let's face it. Those of us that aren't impatient, that aren't particularly patient, it's because it's, suffering to be patient. It's like having your fingernails pulled out, right? It suffers long. By the way, love always involves sacrifice. It always always involves some suffering. It's kind. It's kind. Uh, Kindness is the lost virtue of our age, isn't it? With social media and everything else, we've snarkiness has become the great um, fruit of the world spirit. But it's kind. It's not jealous. It's not in competition with others. I struggle with this one. I, I I'm very competitive. Uh, I figured out school when I realized they were grading on the curve. Because I didn't have to know the information. I just had to know it better than the fraternity boy sitting next to me who was up all night, right? It was great. I, I, I kind of enjoy competition. It was, it was fun that way. Sometimes it means I lost sight of why I was there. But as long as I made a better grade, you know, that's all right. I, I, the competition is natural. We naturally compare ourselves to each other, aren't we? Well, at least I'm not like that person. Remember the religious leader said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. It's it's a natural, but it's never loving when we do that. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. The word literally could be translated, it's not a windbag. It's not a windbag. It's not jealous. It's not proud. The word is literally puffed up. You think of a blowfish, you know, puffs itself up to make itself look bigger. Like elevator shoes or something. It's not rude. It's not rude. This is one of the great sins of 
countercultural movements, whether it was the hippies of the 60s or the counterculture of today or, quite frankly, sometimes us Christians. We, we kind of flaunt our ability not to fall within social uh, mores just to prove we don't have to. And in doing so, we create an unnecessary offense. The Apostle Paul deals with that in 1 uh, Corinthians something. It's somewhere in my notes. Trust me, I'll find it in a little bit. Chapter 9, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law is under the law though not myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those who are without laws, without law. To the weak, I am weak. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, my actions are partially shaped by how I can attract others to Jesus. And oftentimes, rudeness pushes other people away because of our own need to be important. And Paul, who was not necessarily a naturally compliant person, says, I set all that aside so that I can win some. Doesn't seek its own. It's not all about me. It's not provoked. Not easily angered because it's not all about me. Here's a hard one. Doesn't consider a wrong suffered. Some of us can keep lists of offenses by other people back for decades. We can't remember what we had for dinner last night. But we can remember every time so-and-so said or did something that was offensive to us. Problem is that's not loving, right? Doesn't rejoice in in unrighteousness, but with the truth. One writer said, you know, gossip, when we sit around and share other people's shortcomings so we can pray for them, bears all things. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Actually, it's already, you're, you've already defeated because you're suing each other. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Because love bears all things, believes all things. Not in the sense of tell me anything and I'll believe it, but in the sense of I live my life in the context of my faith in the sovereign God so that no matter what the circumstances are, I can act in faith. Because loving others takes faith in God that he will make it fair. Hopes all things because my hope is based in God and endures all things. Endures all things. Love always suffers. It just does. It does. So verses 8 through 13 is the permanence of love. Love never fails. Love never fails. Uh, Julie had that engraved inside of my wedding ring so that we're standing up there taking pictures. Mike Fisher did our wedding. I'm standing there trying to, I'm a nervous wreck. I was totally 
off the charts. I could barely stand. I was so scared of that moment. And I look inside my ring and it says, love never fails. And I cry like a baby. And she's been doing it to me ever since. But that, that's what love does. It never fails. See, we can do patient, kind, all of those other things for a little bit. And we think, look how I've loved them. I don't have to anymore because they offended me. The problem is that's not love. All of those characteristics he gives in chapter, verses 4 through 7, they're not love unless they're lived out continually. So patience that only lasts five minutes is not loving patience. Patience that keeps going is loving patience. Kindness that's only kind when someone's nice to me is not loving kindness. Kindness that is loving kindness is kind even when other people aren't kind to me. It doesn't fail. And then he goes on and goes back through those, those sacred issues in their lives that they put so much emphasis. He says, but if they're gifts of prophecy, the great gift, it'll cease, it'll go away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. There will be a day when we're in the presence of God and all this stuff will disappear because God's glory will diminish everything else. The things we value now, and quite frankly, the things we grasp for now instead of God, none of those will be here when we're with God because God will overwhelm them all. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I have already been fully known by God. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. I'm sorry, that's just impossible for crying out loud. That's, that's crazy stuff. You know why it seems crazy to us? The world we live in defines love as a transaction. The world we live in defines love as something I give to you in light of what you will give to me. I'm nice to you because you're nice to me. You know, you cook my dinner, I mow your yard, right? Um, it's transactional. What's the problem with transactions? When, well, first of all, eventually someone's going to fail. But the bigger problem is I always value what I do more than what you do. In other words, I always feel like what I give is at a greater cost than what you give because I know how much it costs me. Transactional love is not real love, but it's what the world does. What is biblical love? What is the love he's talking about here? It's covenant love, the way God loves us. It's a promise. It's a promise. God doesn't love you and me because we're good. That's the core issue of the gospel. God loves us in spite of who we are based on the goodness of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Which means that even as his followers, no matter how bad we mess up, he will yet love us because he loves us 
based on his covenant, his promise to love. It's never transactional. But you and I too quickly fall into transactional love, which says, I will love you as long as, you know, you live up to my expectations. And that's not love. It's just not. And, and you, you can't live out the expectations of 1 Corinthians 13 if you think in terms of transactions. You'll always keep score. They'll always hurt you. In fact, let me give you a hint. The more you love someone, the more you empower them to hurt you. That's why love is such a great risk. Incredible. Incredible. Let me see, what else was I going to tell you? I'm out of practice. Finally, what's the standard of God's love? The third problem with love is we fail at it. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. The standard of love is the way Christ loved us. That's the standard. My old professor Howard Hendricks used to tell the story of the seminary student came in and said, Prof, I think I love my wife too much. He said, you love her as much as Jesus loves you? By the way, Jesus died for you. He said, no, I don't think so. He said, go home and get to work, son. The standard of love is the love of Christ. But look at verse 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The world has a right to look at you and me no matter what our theology is. And if we don't demonstrate love, say, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think you know Jesus. The more convicting one is the next one. John chapter 17. In the high priestly prayer, which Jason has done such a great job preaching on two Sundays, Jesus says to the Father that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And on down to verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved, have loved me. You know what he says? The world has a right to question whether Jesus is the son of God by our lack of unity, our lack of love. Francis Schaeffer pointed that out in The Mark of a Christian. I read it as a senior in high school. I've never, ever, ever gotten over it. Schaeffer says, Jesus sovereignly gives the world the right to question whether he is the son of God sent from the Father, who he claims to be if if they don't see the kind of loving unity that God expects. Lifeway survey, Lifeway the Baptist bookstore crowd, did a survey of evangelicals. And they found that 43% of evangelicals would agree with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher but was not God. 43% of people that claim they're evangelical Christians doubt the deity of Christ. And I think this is why.
Because Jesus himself said, if there's not unity among my people, then the world has a right to question whether the Father sent me. You want to know my opinion? You can spend all the money you want to on surveys. I'm for surveys. I think they're wonderful reading. But in my opinion, the biggest way we're failing the next generation is the generation has looked at the church and said, do I see a supernatural unity that can only be ascribed to the fact that the one they follow is deity? Do I see a level of love that is so dadgum supernatural that I can't explain it any other way than there must be God there and his name is Jesus? Do, do, do I see people loving sacrificially in such a way that I can't help but say something divine is there? It must be Jesus. In my, I wish, humble opinion, this is where we fail. And I'm not bashing on my old church, Grace Bible Church. I love this church. We visited other churches. They all asked us to come back here. It was terrible. They, <laughs> I, 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 it's, we, we love this church. One of the things Julie says, she loved sitting in the back and she would look at all the people because we know the stories of how you have loved each other. We know the stories of how God's grace has worked in this congregation in the decades that I've been here. It, you're an amazing church. I'm not bashing this congregation. I'm saying that as a body of Christ, Jesus himself said, the world will judge the reality of his deity based on our unity. And the fact that they're questioning his deity may in fact mean that we are not demonstrating the love of Christ the way God called us to do. We are not demonstrating that unity because we're getting caught up in other things. And in doing that, we've lost the testimony that we could have had. So who, who is God putting in your life to love? Who in the body of Christ has God put in your life to forgive and to love? That's the great challenge of the love we've been commanded to follow. Let's pray. Father, we confess that love is hard. It's a problem because you expect so much of us. You expect us to love like Jesus and we're just not him. But Father, we confess with sad hearts that we, the body of Christ, is not loved in a way that demonstrated the supernatural nature of our, our Savior. Our love has been shallow, it's been transactional, it's been weak, and the world has looked and said, so what's the difference? Lord, today, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would demonstrate a love in this congregation, in us as individuals, that shouts and screams, Jesus is God. In his name we pray, amen.